Hi, I'm John Molesky, and this is America's 360. The program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies, and America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, the 2020 U.S. election is less than a month away, and it will be the first time that Latino voters will comprise the largest non-white demographic group in the electorate with a projected 32 million eligible voters. With those numbers, 2020 presents a huge opportunity for Latinos to make their mark on U.S. politics and make a difference in who will win in November. To learn more about the Latino vote, we turn to one of the key members of our production team, Mariana Sanchez, who normally guides America's 360 from behind the scenes, but for this episode steps in front of the microphone to speak with our special guest, Sabrina Rodriguez. It's all yours, Mariana, take it away. Thank you, John, and welcome, Sabrina. It's great to be here, thanks for having me. Thank you, so let's go ahead and just dive in and let's talk about um, the Latino vote here in, in the United States. So how important will the Latino vote be? And are there key specific states in which this can, this voting block will be decisive? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, I think every election cycle, there's, a, there's lots of talk of this monolith, the Latino vote and how candidates are going after it. But I really do think in 2020, we're seeing it actually kind of truly grow in influence. And I think there's, there's this really um, big emphasis in getting returns on that investment for both Republicans and Democrats. Um, and, you know, I think when we're looking at the key states, it's Florida, Arizona, Texas, uh, North Carolina as well, I've learned in recent weeks with certain races there. So there's, you know, there's a focus in these key states with high Latino population. I think when you see where candidates are going the most, it ends up being Florida. And it's often because of how influential the state is and how it's considered a swing state. And typically a candidate wins by very uh, small margins. But in terms of actual numbers, you know, we're seeing Arizona and Texas in the last few years, the population of Latinos has increased significantly. And that's definitely going to be part of, I think, you know, when we're talking in November after the election, what happens, I think, you know, who turned out to vote and how many Latinos came out will definitely be a big storyline. Great. No, definitely. We see the growth in the Latino uh, population, the voting bloc continues to grow exponentially. So with that in mind, what do you expect in terms of turnout of the voting bloc this upcoming election? I'd like to be more optimistic um, than I than I actually am. I think there's, you know, obviously as this being a growing voting block, obviously as there being a lot of young Latino voters, we know that typically young voters aren't the first ones to go out to the polls. It tends to be, you know, older uh, older voters, and and that applies too when we're talking about Latinos. Um, you know, in in South Florida, that's where I'm originally from, so I know it very well. Is you know, older Cubans, they always go out to vote. They're very reliably Republican. So that's kind of why there's always this narrative about how Cubans are Republican. But it's really because the numbers kind of gear towards these older voters that that are very reliable. Um, and that is going to change. I think that that's, you know, part of just a demographic shift that we're going to see. Now, I think will be when, you know, you start to see those returns and you start to see more young Latinos that are angry at what's going on or are excited about what's going on and are going to be going out to vote. Um, but, you know, I think it's still with any kind of demographic shift, uh, it takes a while to to really see the sheer power of it. 
Right. And with that said, what do you feel are the issues that Latino voters are prioritizing? And does this help one candidate over the other? Yeah. So, I mean, Latino voters across the country are definitely interested in the same that, you know, white Americans, the same the African Americans issues, you know, and the economy and they care about healthcare. And those are definitely two of the biggest issues whenever you see uh, a poll or such of what are the top issues, uh, especially obviously 2020 coronavirus and how uh, handling the response. Uh, when you look at Arizona, when you look at Texas, when you look at Florida, immigration is oftentimes a big issue as well, because a lot of them a lot of Latinos are families of immigrants or immigrants themselves that have become U.S. citizens uh, and now get to vote. So, I mean, when you look at it, it's economy, it's education, it's healthcare, it's immigration. I would say when you look at Florida, it's very much as well relationship with Latin America. And that's why we see, you know, the Trump administration coming every other week to South Florida to talk about Venezuela, to talk about Cuba. It's literally in the last seven days, they've made like two announcements of Cuba restrictions and cracking down on, you know, the sanctions and tightening them and such. Um, and that plays well to the Republican base here and is kind of geared towards energizing them. Um, and it helps as well as the Republican Party is trying to solidify the Venezuelan vote. They, they want it to be that stereotype when you talk about Cubans and their Republicans. Well, you talk about Venezuelans and their Republicans, too. Um, so there's a big effort to really talk about those issues and, and get them to swing to one uh, party over the other. And to that point, um, I wanted to bring up your latest article you've written for Politico regarding disinformation. So can you explain to, to us and to our audience how Latino voters are being targeted um, in disinformation campaigns specifically? Yeah, so it's there's so much disinformation going on in, in just Spanish language groups, which makes it harder for there to be fact checks. Um, since when you look at Facebook and Twitter and such, they've made a big effort to try and fight disinformation from the 2016 elections. But a lot of that hasn't translated into them making efforts necessarily in Spanish. So right now it's, you know, in WhatsApp groups, YouTube channels, different fake news sites that have popped up that are talking about, you know, I, I'm still recovering from all the conspiracy theories I had to listen to for this story. <laughs> but, um, but you know, things as crazy as, you know, Biden being a pedophile or, you know, Black Lives Matter being worse than the Nazis and it's it, all these things out there. Um, so it's been, you know, it's, it's part of figuring out how to disprove that, but it's really prominent. Um, and especially in the radio waves, which I never expected, um, but in South Florida, if you listen to some of the traditional Latino radios, which are typically run by Cubans, Colombians, and Venezuelans, um, have a lot of these conspiracy theories that are really, you know, we think they're crazy, but a lot of people believe them. Well, Sabrina, we have run out of time. Sabrina Rodriguez, trade reporter of Politico, thank you so much for joining us today on America's 360. Back to you, John. Thank you, Mariana. Uh, thank you, Sabrina, as well. And you can follow more of Sabrina's great work at Politico.com, including the article that Mariana asked her about during the interview. Uh, we'll be right back with our roundtable, where our regular team of experts will continue the discussion of the importance of the Latino vote. Stick around. You're listening to America's 360.
Welcome back. During each episode of America's 360, our experts connect the dots, exploring, as Woodrow Wilson put it during a 1913 speech, the innumerable ties that bind the nations of the Western Hemisphere. Joining us for the roundtable today are Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gadan. Hi, Benjamin. Hi, how are you? Doing well. Also, Brazil Institute Director Ricardo Zuniga. Hey, John. Hi, Ricardo. Canada Institute Director Chris Sands. Hi, John. Hi, Chris. And we awarded a Stanley Cup last night. Good times, Chris. Good times. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Latin American Program Director Cindy Arnson is here. Do I have to tell you what the Stanley Cup is, Cindy, or do you know about that? No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I don't know if anybody cares the south of the border Washington other than wanted, Chris and I. Washington won it, right? The Caps oh, that's right. That's right. That has happened. And last but not least, Mexico Institute Director Duncan Wood. Hello, Duncan. Good afternoon. So, so let's begin where Mariana and Sabrina left off in terms of this discussion of a monolithic voting bloc. You know, we're all guilty of it, right? Experts, journalists, politicians, even individual citizens of, of grouping people together because it's a con- kind of convenient, manageable way to talk about it. But should we start uh, taking that apart, dismantling that right at the start of this discussion? Ricardo, what are your thoughts? Well, look, I, I, absolutely. I think that they touched on a really important point and that this election is tangibly different uh, in terms of the way that campaigns are dealing with uh, different Latino blocs and doing a lot more work that I think is, is actually important, not just for this election, but for understanding the community uh, in the United States, which is to say that you're talking about different communities. There's enormous regional differentiation. There's a lot of differentiation in terms of the demographics. Uh, one of the points that I, I'd seen referred to earlier was that uh, the gender differences in terms of voting tendencies uh, in different Latino communities is larger than in many other communities in the United States. So there's this other demographic element as well. So I think it is important to think about the very significant differences, not just uh, you know, depending on countries of origin or, or, or cultural backgrounds, but where in the country we're talking about. The other point that I thought was so important was that also the kinds of issues that are uh, important to these different groups matters on where they are and where they fit demographically and economically in the country, just like any other community in the United States. It's really important to make, just to underline this point, there is not a monolithic group. These are different communities with different uh, needs and interests. Just to build on that, um, you know, I'd like to to, to point out that, you know, we've seen this with the Mexican-American population for decades now. And part of it has to do with their um, their place of origin within the country. I mean, we see migration patterns that are widely different for people coming from the state of Puebla, who have often tended to go to New York, versus those from Oaxaca who go to uh, California, for example. Um, As they move up into the United States, you see that those migrant populations uh, develop different interests on top of the different interests and perspectives and political uh, preferences that they had in Mexico. So I don't think it should be any mystery that this, uh, there's this enormous diversity amongst the Latino populations. But I think there are, there are other elements as well. And we've talked about uh, sort of place of origin. We've talked about where they live in the United States. But the demographic element as well in terms of their youth. I mean, the, remember, the Latinos are a, an incredibly uh, young demographic profile. Um, but, uh, you know, there's also uh, segments of that population that are aging, that are thinking, some of them, about potentially going home. Others who are, you know, determined that they're actually, they, they don't want to go home and they want to stay in the United States. And, uh, you know, that begins to play out, certainly in their, in their concerns that we're seeing in the polls over the economy and over questions like health care. Cindy Arnson. 
Sure, I mean, the, um, the impact or the potential impact of Latino voters is just tremendous. When you look at a statistic like the, the following, that um, two thirds of the Latino population in the United States um, is really in a handful of states. In California, which I presume are primarily Mexican-Americans, in Texas, Florida, New York, and Arizona. And those are some of the you know, most important swing states, California and New York, not in that category, but Texas, Florida, and Arizona being really hotly contended. Um, and, and picking up on, on Sabrina's um, comment earlier in the interview, the fact that the majority of Latino voters are young is itself problematic in that it's not just the number of eligible voters, it's the likelihood that they're gonna go um, to vote. And to, to just continue on that track of distinguishing between um, different Latino groups, I mean, Venezuelans in South Florida are not necessarily the same as Puerto Ricans that are in the Orlando area, um, or the Cuban Americans that are in um, that are in Florida, and and I think it's testimony to the diversity that the Biden campaign, for example, has made campaign ads in Spanish but with three different accents, so that they are targeting different segments of that um, of, of Latino voters. Chris yeah, John, I think it's kind of interesting, maybe as a thought experiment, to think about the way that other immigrant populations have, have come in. Uh, Duncan talked about Mexicans not necessarily voting as a block, but Canadians in the United States, and there are a lot of them, don't actually vote as a block either. They tend to trend to wherever they've ended up in, whether maybe in the West or in the East of the United States, and they don't vote like British, not looking at you, Duncan, or uh, Australian or other English-speaking migrants. And so in that way, it's kind, of an, it's kind of an interesting contrast, but in some ways reflects the same kind of dynamics that, that everyone has talked about so far. Now, Benjamin, speaking of not being monolithic, tell them why they're wrong. You're right. <laughs> no, no. I mean, certainly there's diversity within the group, although actually, if you look at, you know, the components of Latino voters in the United States, they are, you know, largely from Mexico. There are communities of Puerto Ricans, there's much smaller community of Venezuelans that we talk about mostly because they're concentrated in South Florida. But I think broadly speaking, it's a community that has a lot at this moment in common demographically, socioeconomically, and geographically within the United States. And so for that reason, I don't think it's foolhardy that the campaigns speak about a Latino voting bloc and make efforts to make inroads in that community. And, and I think you know both parties do it for the reasons that Cindy has pointed out. It's a large and growing voting group in you know swing states. So I would just make the case that within that diversity, there's enough in common that it's worth thinking about as, as a voting group with certain preferences um, that's worth fighting over. Um, you know, just looking at the Pew uh, data uh, on, uh, on the Latino vote or on Hispanics as it is identified here, um, you know, it's, uh, there are some pretty major differences between how the average U.S. voter uh, uh, thinks about the election, the issues that matter to them versus the average uh, Hispanic voter, you know, um, on issues such as uh, as diverse as, you know, I mentioned healthcare earlier on in the economy. Um, but here, I think, you know, looking at climate change, you know, 60% of uh, registered Hispanic voters um, believe that that is a priority versus only 42% of US adults. And then, you know, on foreign policy, there's a 10 point gap um, yeah, only 47% of Hispanics believe that foreign policy is very important 
in the uh, in the 2020 election versus 57 percent of uh, of U.S. adults. Those two issues in particular really stand out for me, and it suggests that uh, number one, you know, uh, Biden being more uh, sort of uh, pro climate change mitigation, I think we'll pick up points there if that's an important uh, a very important issue for 60 percent of registered Hispanic voters. And on foreign policy, maybe you know nationwide, any focus on the uh, uh, on on foreign policy from the Trump campaign may be uh, misplaced. But of course, that brings us back down to the local level again, which is that we're seeing very localized, even personalized campaigns trying to hit the exact voter in the exact region or even city. And that's a critical point, Duncan. In that uh, we're talking about a voting block coming of age at a moment when the trend in campaigning is micro-targeting where you can get so specific. The point you just made, Cindy earlier made the point about different accents even being employed to reach individuals that might live in a particular neighborhood. If I could just add to the, the data that, um, that Duncan was referring to in the Pew survey that came out in uh, July, early August, um, there are two additional issues where I think the Latino community as a whole, to go back to Benjamin's you know, characterization, differs pretty, pretty substantially from um, the average U.S. voter. One is on the concern for COVID-19. Um, they were plus 10 points uh, more likely to say that this was a priority, um, given the tremendous devastation that the Latino and, and Black communities have suffered disproportionately um, as a result of the pandemic. And they were also 14 percent uh, more likely to cite racial and ethnic inequality as an issue. So there, there are sets of issues that are of unique concern to this demographic. So actually, let me pick up on that. Uh, one, I think it really does capture uh, an important point, which is that there are some very significant differences, but you're also, I think it's important to look at the, these various uh, Latino groups around the United States as also being part of this gigantic sort and resort that's happening within the American electorate. We've seen it over the last uh, decade, uh, you know, breaking more along lines of education as opposed to necessarily lines of income or regional. Um, and the rural, urban, and suburban split is also uh, very significantly uh, being you know, a, a part of this issue. But I, I'd like to take it one step further. I mean, Sabrina made the point about the, the impact of disinformation uh, in certain categories of voters, uh, particularly in South Florida, but uh, you know, the same applies to uh, people in certain demographic groups around, not just around the country, but around the world. I mean, I really do think that we're going through this massive resort, not just in the United States, but certainly in Europe and certainly in the Americas, where you have the, you know, the various, this is maybe the ultimate result of, the, of globalization's impact uh, on societies around, around the world. And you know, the power of the internet, but also the power of radio, which is something that we, you know, we think of the internet as the big force. Certainly, in, in we talked about in a prior discussion, WhatsApp was a powerful force in Brazil, but radio is a very powerful force in many parts of the Americas and is the way that most people consume information still in many parts of the Americas. And so it's not so much the medium as the fact that you have very large demographic groups that are you know, you might say vulnerable to this message or open to the message, depending on your perspective. And I think that it's worth thinking about how the United States fits into this larger, larger picture of a rearrangement of, of uh, sort of voting blocks and tendencies. Benjamin Gaudin. One thing we haven't talked much about is immigration policy. I mean, we're a foreign policy think tank. And much to, you know, my chagrin, the Latino community, like all other communities, doesn't vote 
based on foreign policy issues, we thought, you know, this community would drive a, a long-term public discussion of U.S. policy in Latin America. However, I think it's almost 60% of Latinos consider immigration an important issue when thinking about, you know, whom they will vote for for president. And here, you know, the distinction is very clear in this election. I mean, the president is running on a very hard line anti-immigrant platform, and that hasn't been sort of a side issue, but really core from his campaign in 2016 until today. So I think when thinking about the Latino voting bloc in this election, it may not be outside South Florida questions of Cuba sanctions or Venezuela policy, but certainly the treatment of Central American and Mexican migrants will be in the minds of Latino voters. Cindy Johnson. There's an additional point um, on, on Venezuelans the, uh, connected to, to immigration. Um, the Biden campaign is driving home to the Venezuelan communities that are in Florida um, that the Trump administration has refused to grant temporary protected status to Venezuelans in the United States that protects them from being temporarily from being deported back to Venezuela. And um, that has become a huge issue as much as uh, President Trump has tried to throw red meat to that community together with the Colombian American community and the Cuban American community. So in the, in the couple of minutes we have remaining, it's almost a tradition when talking about elections to make predictions, even for responsible experts and analysts like yourselves. Uh, so I, we won't go into the who's going to win, who's going to lose. But uh, earlier, I know Marianne and Sabrina talked about this, uh, that will we be talking about the Latino vote after this election, say, the way we talked about the white working class vote or the suburban women's vote last time around? And if we will, what will the story be? Will there be a particular race, a particular state where you think this will loom large? And Ricardo, I'm going to put you on the spot to begin this and give everybody else a chance to think about it. We certainly will, but not just in Florida. I think Texas and Arizona is where we're going to be talking about the, the Latino, vote, Latino turnout and demographics of that vote, uh, because th those are such borderline states um, that, that it, that's really going to make a big difference. And I think there's going to be a lot of attention paid to it. Just uh, I would just oh, build Duncan, on that by saying, yeah, Arizona, certainly. Um, but Nevada as well. I think that, uh, you know, you've got uh, the Latino vote is so important in the state. And I'm I'm beginning to wonder how important the, uh, the Supreme Court uh, nomination is going to be in terms of uh, getting pro-lifers to uh, to be more enthused about the election. Um, you know, as as we know, that tends to be an issue as well, which matters to a lot of uh, Latino voters. Um, so, uh, yeah, certainly my Republican Latino friends that I've been speaking to recently have been talking about this as an issue that could play a role. Benjamin? I think particularly if the president is not reelected, the Republican Party will go through yet again a sort of moment of reckoning and thinking about whether it can base its you know, political fortunes entirely on, you know, American white communities. And if it finds that that's not viable, given the changing demographics, I think the Latino community will once again become a subject of interest within the Republican Party. I, I agree, you know, with the uh, the critical importance of the Latino vote to um, um, to Arizona and to New Mexico, to uh, two states that, you know, especially in Arizona, which is a swing state. But my, I'm just going to wager a, a, a guess that Latino turnout will be um, less impressive in, in this election than people anticipate, and that that in itself will become um, part of the story as to why people held back. Cindy, I was trying to, I was gonna try to save the last word for you, but I failed to do so, so we turn to Canada for the last word on the Latino vote. 
I'm almost dead certain that the Canadian vote will push whoever wins over the top and we'll be dealing <laughs> with this for weeks to come. Oh my. Okay. <laughs> we'll stay tuned. We'll find out. That's all the time we have for this week, everybody. Thank you. Cindy, Ricardo, Benjamin, Chris, Duncan. See you next time. Uh, to our listeners, is there a topic you'd like us to cover on America's 360 or perhaps a guest you'd like to hear from? If so, you can reach us via email at americas360 at wilsoncenter.org. We'd love to hear from you. And until then, for all of us at the Wilson Center and America's 360, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for joining us. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. America's 360 is produced and edited by Oscar Cruz, Angela Robertson, and Mariana Sanchez Ramirez. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.